First Nations people have been caring for country for tens of thousands of years and maintain this responsibility today. Since colonisation, the displacement of Aboriginal people can be charted alongside the pastoral and agricultural expansion by European colonists. First Nations people have been engaged in agriculture for generations, most notably as stockmen on outback cattle stations, but also as experts in land management practices such as fire stick farming. Despite these links between traditional and Western forms of agriculture, experts are warning Indigenous representation in the industry is declining. Farmer, academic and environmental advocate Joshua Gilbert has explored the issue and has been advocating for more engagement with First Nations people. Joshua, welcome to Speaking Out. Thanks so much for having me. Before we dive into this topic, can you just tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your influences were? What shaped your worldview or who shaped your worldview? Yeah, I actually grew up on Wiradjuri country down in a place called Borowa, uh, about an hour and a half from Canberra. I grew up surrounded by agriculture and had never really thought about it as a career choice. During that time, moved back up the coast on country went and studied law and accounting at the University of Newcastle and about halfway through my degree, found agriculture all over again, found that um, I wanted to be involved more and more in farming. That That's what I wanted to do as a career choice. So really doubled down on it, uh, left my law degree a bit early and uh, started pursuing a career in, in agriculture and farming uh, through that. And that's kind of led me on this really interesting journey to, to where I am. Well, we always love a bit of doubling down. I'm known for that myself, but <laughs> I wonder if you can tell me what it was that that made you um, reignite your interest in agriculture. Yeah, I, I was working at ABC at the time, actually. I had a legal and finance cadetship there. And through that, I started exploring what pathways might be um, you know, viable at the time around being able to own a bit of land uh, one day and was introduced to uh, a young farming organisation through that and, you know, a bit involved, quite interested in that and within a few weeks of um, leaving my placement and going back to university, I, I headed back up north. We had a an event uh, up in Armadale and I just had this connection back and, uh, you know, we went out to a few sheep properties and, uh, it was just a really good weekend and that really just sparked my my memory of what it was like growing up as a kid in Borowa and just this passion that kind of re-emerged. And, th- you know, post that, I guess, um, going back and looking at my family's history and where all the ties kind of lead, I, I don't think it's a, an accident that I, I ended up doing what I'm doing, but it, it certainly um, was an awakening for me, I guess, on that weekend as to where that, that passion started. You talk about your family connections and that being something that you feel naturally leads you back to agriculture. Can you share a little bit with that, of that with us? Because, of course, a lot of Aboriginal families would have connection to their own country in rural parts and have um, had family members or themselves worked in the pastoral industry. My family ties, um, I'm a Warmai man, my, my family are from here. My dad's ancestry goes back through the Bug family and the early to mid 1800s, our country was gifted to the Australian Agricultural Company, which is one of the biggest agricultural companies still today. My dad's uh, Indigenous family and non-Indigenous family clashed over this battle for land and battle for, for farmland. 
um, particularly sheep farming that they were doing at that time and basically started this this real connection and romance. And from that, uh, one of their, their children, Marianne Bug, got the chance and, and was told that she had to uh, go down to an orphanage in Parramatta, learn to, to read and write so that she'd be deemed useful for the company, came back, learned quite a lot of cultural knowledge and used that um, in this really fascinating way uh, through her life to evade police and, and live off country while her and her husband and partner, Captain Thunderbolt, um, evaded police and, and were known as the Robin Hood bushrangers at the time. So, you know, there, there's this kind of folklore and, and romanticism, I, I guess, that, that comes out through that. Uh, and my, my family have been farming in a Western sense since, uh, both sheep and dairy and, and cattle. So, yeah, it's this kind of interesting um, insight. And, and I think we, we don't necessarily appreciate that, that that connection happened, you know, right back in those early days, but really mob were involved in the agricultural and particularly pastoral industries post those interactions to engage into an economy to really look after their families in, in this new world and, and just try and transition, I guess, into something that was really being forced upon mob at the time. Marianne Bugg's a great historical figure. I'm I'm glad you brought, brought her up and not surprised to to hear that you're a descendant of such a feisty <laughs> woman. Um, you're undertaking a PhD exploring the role of Indigenous identity and culture through Western agriculture post-colonisation. What trends have you observed? So, some real worrying trends, I think, to start off with, Larissa. I think um, for me the, there's a real gap in understanding who's actually out there and um, what mob are farming? Uh, unfortunately, the agricultural sector, um, you know, despite relying so heavily on indigenous labour from you know the, that first point of colonisation right up until the not late nineteen nineties, um, and, and even you know recently as well, I you know there's, there's been reliance upon mob for labour and to really work on on different farms, and, and then there's, there's been quite a lot of tension, I think since then around equal wage conversations and, and mob striking around that to try and, and get equal pay for the work that they're doing and also land rights actions as well. So uh, unfortunately, Western agriculture has probably pushed us um, right away from the space. And what that means is that none of the agricultural organisations and the research and development corporations that exist um, have ever really asked if people want to identify as mob through any of their surveys that they conduct every year. Um, and so we don't, actually don't have a real fair idea as to what the size and scale of Indigenous agriculture is today. And, and that, you know, I, I use Indigenous agriculture as a definition of mob farming, a- anything from, you know, traditional bush foods and native grains all the way up to cattle and sheep and and cropping. So we don't really know what that looks like. We don't have a, a process for mob to be heard in, in this conversation. And we really um, are struggling, I think, to get young mob involved as well. So there's less than five Indigenous ag graduates every year across Australia. So that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to try and address that as well. What have you observed in regards to traditional Aboriginal practices uh, in modern agriculture? Have they been utilised or have they been overlooked? Yeah, this is fascinating for me because it's a really interesting yarn that I I don't think uh, it it certainly hasn't had enough research into the space. So the conversation really talks about this this need to 
you know, look at Indigenous worldviews and incorporate it into agriculture without really acknowledging that mob were already doing that um, from that at, at initial point of colonisation up till now. So we know that in a lot of different pastoral properties, particularly up in the top end where it's most um, recorded because of the, the lateness um, of that involvement, you know, there, there's stories of mob uh, teaching white farmers how to burn their lands, where to go to access water and the best, you know, the best feed at the time to increase the, the weight gains on their cattle. There's, uh, you know, all, a lot of yarns around how mob were, were taking farmers on this journey and teaching their kids how to, to speak traditional languages and uh, traditional stories to really understand the landscape in the, in the new way. And also there's this kind of flip conversation where um, there's, this acknowledgement that agriculture actually played a new process of, you know, adapting culturally as well. So there's stories of, of men, of stockmen who, you know, used agriculture as a process of initiation for, for boys, for instance, of starting off at, at the homestead level and building up their skill set to, to becoming lead stockmen on station. So there's this kind of real cross intersection of where all of this comes together that there's all, I think a lot of knowledge that's already been shared with Western agriculture that we don't necessarily appreciate has been shared with Western agriculture or acknowledge that that's where the knowledge has come from. Uh, because a lot of the early farming techniques that white society brought uh, to Australia were really based on, you know, European insights. So even the country where I am now, uh, you know, I, I mentioned it was sheep country. That's what AACO had started farming and um, it, it's definitely not sheep farming country for, for anyone that um, looks at it now and, and really has an understanding of it. It's the, the last country you'd want to farm sheep on. So, uh, you know, just, just those nuances of where, you know, mob were, were trying to share these knowledges and were learning and understanding this new world environment all kind of happened into this sector. I think there's a lot lot more knowledge to come from that and to, to be shared and implemented as is there knowledge from Western society that should be interwoven through Indigenous agriculture um, and, you know, our traditional bush foods as well to get big benefits as well? Uh, but, yeah, there's just a lot of work to be done in that space. And I think until we can identify who's out there and what they're doing, um, we won't really be able to have those conversations. When you mentioned the fact that initially to just even understand how to survive on country, colonists were really reliant on First Nations knowledges. We're seeing a time now where we've got bushfires, extreme flooding, extreme weather. Are you seeing a trend in the sector towards wanting to re-engage with traditional knowledges as a result of that? I think there is a, a bit of interest. I, I think probably the thought leader, um, white agriculturalists are really, you know, those that are really ahead of um, the rest of the industry are looking to mob and trying to work with mob to understand that. And there's some really interesting examples of where that's happening back down around the Canberra region where, you know, you have some white farmers who are giving back some of their lands through agreements with local traditional owners and saying, you manage this land and you come and reap the benefits from that um, as part of this joint exploration around what this could look like and take advantage of the role there. Um, and the, the you know, position that both parties could look at and explore together. So that that's a really kind of fascinating insight. But uh, I presented to uh, some young ag agricultural students recently and, uh, you know, I, I still think there's quite a lot of 
fear-mongering and this concern that if um, people speak out that or, or, you know, want to create these relationships that, that they are somehow, you know, fearful that their properties will be taken off them or that somebody's just going to rock up and try and grab hold of what they're doing. It's a really interesting insight. And, you know, I, I don't think agriculture, despite those relationships, are, are the most culturally aware um it is the most culturally aware industry and there's a lot of work to be done there before even creating the relationships that are needed to create the opportunities to learn from each other to then have those um, broader benefits. I'm probably asking you to restate some of the things that you've already canvassed for us in the conversation so far with this next question, but from your perspective, what are some of the practical measures which might encourage more First Nations people to enter into the agricultural workforce? Just acknowledging that there, there is a big gap there. Uh, I think, you know, the research around only having five Indigenous ag graduates is, is only recent um, that, and there's a whole heap of scholarships and that being developed now to try and get mob to study ag, which is really exciting. I think from a broader industry perspective as well, um, they're noticing that there's, there is a big gap in the workforce demands um, for for people to come and work in the industry generally. And obviously, um, mob who who are there, who know the landscape really well, have a, a real opportunity to, to get involved in some of those career roles. So I think there's some work to be done there from the industry. I, I'm really mindful as well that agriculture um, is probably one of the late adopters of reconciliation action plans. And I, I think having that process around, you know, a, a wrap and having a, some work that an organisation has to do around what that looks like for them and their relationship with MOB is, is quite important as well. So I, I think as the, the sector starts to have those conversations and, and it really is only just starting to have them now, I, I think there'll be a lot more opportunities that come out of that and hopefully we have a, a sector um, that really acknowledges the, the tragedies that um, it's been responsible for in the past but also tries to engage really positively and proactively with mob right across the country and, and connects those career opportunities up with mob on the ground. Well, finally, I want to acknowledge that you're also a very active environmental and climate advocate. And I wonder if you could share with us why this is an issue that you're so passionate about. It's, um, it, it's just passion work for me, I think. So, I, you know, I grew up um, seeing the impacts of drought in, in my really early um, days in, being in Borowa. I came, we moved back up here on, onto country when I was quite young and, and saw the impacts of droughts again. And in the last three years alone, we've seen three or four floods wipe out the fences on the farm. We've had the most tragic drought that uh, certainly my, my father and my grandfathers um, ha- have ever seen. And, and that really makes me worried about what country is experiencing and how we have these really polarizing act- events and activities that um, mean that we can't engage with country in, in the ways in which we like and, and have that connection with it. So for me, the, the climate change campaigning is, and activism work is really acknowledging that um, what we're seeing now just isn't normal, but that things need to change. And the only way that we are able to really drive change, I think from an individual level, obviously there's doing our work, but we need to inspire and encourage this broader change uh, and that you know often has to be driven by government policy to get the bigger agenda being um, changed to then 
you know, provide the, the changes that we need to see. So uh, I'm just really mindful that all the work that um, needs to be done is around creating those relationships and those connections. So I started doing that in agriculture back in 2015 when I helped lead one of the first proactive climate change policies at the time um, for agriculture to really acknowledge. And there's a lot of work now to be done around moving the sector and, and moving people in regional areas as well towards this um, acknowledgement that not only is climate change having a huge impact on our landscape, but the biggest solution and the best solution is engaging locally with mob uh, who often have the answers around this and know country really well um, and can speak speak to it in, in a very different way to connect all of that together to be able to, to be here on country, hopefully for the next 60,000 years. Joshua Gilbert, thank you so much for your time and sharing your insights with us on Speaking Out. No, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Joshua Gilbert is a farmer, academic and environmental advocate.